So there's there there are two possibilities going on here. One, you're you're bringing up a term that I have never heard before. The the other possibility is that this is a term I've heard before, but it involves a language that uses pronunciation that's different from Latinate, and so you have no idea how to say it properly. An intensely 80s post-apocalyptic schlock film. Oh, and schlong film. You know, it's been over 20 years, but spoilers. Oh, okay. So, so the resident Catholic thinking about that, we're going for low Earth orbit. There is no rational here. Blame it on me after. And you know I will. I mean, it is two o'clock in the fucking morning where I am. I don't think you can get very much more homosexual panic than that. No, which I don't know if that's better. I mean, you guys are Catholics. You tell me. I'm just kind of excited that like you and producer George will have something to talk about that basically just means that I can show up and get fed. This is a geek history of time. Where we connect nerdery to the real world. My name is Ed Blaylock. I'm a world history and English teacher at the middle school level here in Northern California. And uh, this afternoon, um, earlier today before we're recording, um, I had the opportunity to uh, actually go and buy a hobby book for the first time in months. It was, it was, it was almost kind of giddy making, um, um, <laughs> uh, because I, I went to my, my friendly local gaming store and, uh, I had, I had, uh, pre-ordered the book in question, um, and it, it came in yesterday. And so I went in to go pick it up today and I had already partially paid for it, but just, there was something about going into the store and and knowing that I had something waiting for me, it was it was it was very nice. Um, I I went out and did that as part of an Aaron's trip to go get groceries and stuff. But um, it was it was yeah. I haven't I haven't done that in a while, and um, it felt it felt very good. Um, so it's it's nice to. Nice to have done that. And I actually have, have the book sitting on, on the table in front of me right now as I'm recording and I'm just looking at it and it's, it's just making me happy. So that's, that's kind of what I had going on today. Um, who are you and what's happened with you? Well, I'm Damien Harmony. I am a high school U.S. history teacher up here in the Northern California area. Um, and what is happening with me is... Right. So... You know, it, it, it occurs to me that uh, in my attempt to keep this timeless, this may or may not uh, ruin it. But okay. every year I ask myself, is this the year? Is this the year? And every year the answer is no, this is not the year. And the question that I ask myself is, is this the year I start wearing shorts to work? This year is the <laughs> fucking year. This, this been... was it. Finally, yes. you, you broke down. Yes. Anytime the temperature of the day is going to be over 70. I let myself wear shorts. Um, and 
I do not give a shit. And I already just wear T-shirts anyway. Yeah. Right. So it used to be like semi, you know, like, oh, he's the wacky guy with the wacky T-shirts, you know. Yeah. Now yeah, yeah. it's just full on. And as it turns <laughs> out, my teaching hasn't suffered at all. Um, okay. Did were you concerned? I that was it would? not. But a lot okay. of people do that whole like, well, you know, they're not going to see you as a professional. I'm like, yeah, but you know what? They know I know my shit, and yeah. I'm teaching them to do some cool stuff. Yeah, and the pants have nothing to do with it. Yeah, well, um, that's true. And and my con my 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 go to just in case somebody comes at me about it has yeah. been this place tried to kill me two years ago. Fuck them. So like, I'll go with that. Like yeah. I 110 percent back that. Yeah. What what drives me nuts, you know, talking to, talking about that uh, in our profession. Yep. is um I, I make the mistake on a regular basis of of like going onto Reddit and looking at stuff. Oh, and uh one of the one of the groups I'm in uh are r slash teachers. Mm-hmm. Um I hear like I have to wonder like what kind of fucking fascist dictatorships are you all teaching under? Because people are are you know posting stuff about, you know, I wore jeans to work and like they wrote up a letter on me. Yeah, they're not like they're in right to work states is what it is. Like, oh, my like, God. Well, yeah. And and, and I'm over it's, here like all entitled and shit of like, you tried to kill me. Fuck you. You know, but yeah, like and nobody's yeah. coming at me either. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. I, I think part of it is my personality is nobody wants to come at me. Uh, But I think a bigger there, part of it is they've is got that. bigger fish to fry, too. That's true. They, they, and, they genuinely yeah. do have bigger fish to fry. And the other thing is, um, I, I think not just your personality, but uh, your particular reputation and the, and the culture that we are working in. Yeah. I think disincentivizes because we're in different districts, but, but the state that we're in. Yes. I I think that the culture disincentivizes uh, administrators like picking on picky and crap like that. Yeah. It really, you know, know, it really is. I, I remember years ago, somebody came to me, uh, an administrator that I admired quite a bit, actually, one that I respected. He was formerly a teacher, then became an administrator. And he came to me. He's like, Harmony, you got to. Is there anything in the contract where we can tell like teachers to wear pants? And I said, you're coming to a union rep asking <laughs> for me to do asking your job for, for you. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. You called no. me by my you called me by my last name. Did it say Quisling on my name tag? Like, <laughs> right. I'm but sorry. then I told him, I said, uh, let me ask you this. Um, is this teacher that you, you have in question? Is this the only complaint you have? Uh, and they're like, yeah. I'm like, be grateful. Yeah. Because like, there are plenty of teachers that you and I have to sit in meetings about. Um, all the time. Right. Whereas this yeah. person you and I, I, I put it right back at him. I'm like, you acknowledge that this person is one of the best and most effective teachers we have on campus. So maybe leave him alone. Maybe, yeah. So, yeah, like but anyway, I, yeah, I'm wearing yeah. shorts every time. It's nice. Uh, when I tease the kids a little bit, I always tease them, and I always end it with, "Think how bad things are for you. You just got teased by somebody in a Muppet T-shirt wearing cargo shorts, argyle <laughs> socks, and orthopedic shoes." <laughs> Oh, that's see, that's that's a way to leverage it, though. Oh, yeah, that's brilliant. I yeah. like that. So <laughs> I like that. Like, yeah. like on those occasions when I when I wear my kilt to work, um, sure. when if if kids give me trouble, I have I have decided I'm going to look at them. And I'm going to go really, 
really you're 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 gonna you're gonna give that uh to to a man who's brave enough to wear a skirt to work yeah you're, you're gonna really? you're gonna pick on a man who's got a man skirt on yeah he's crazy enough yeah. to do that <laughs> yeah and you think i won't get up to my my neck in your ass with a referral <laughs> <laughs> oh i wish i could get away with using that specific language with sixth graders but yeah, no. yeah the the theme the theme would be there yeah yeah so anyway what you got tonight because i i brought nothing okay well that's okay because because you no, as you just discussed you you didn't um no i uh you you have brought plenty recently so it's it's only fair that i i you know bring something to the table other than my devastating good looks and uh, we lead with our strengths ed yeah well you know yeah mine mine is clearly doing research because i'm not smart enough and yours is being handsome so (laughs) there you go Yeah. yeah so um, I want to, I want to talk to you, um, uh, about an author. So okay. this is, this is going to be another, another couple of episodes on a, on a specific author. And the reason I want to talk about this author is because, um, he is incredibly influential, mm-hmm. but nobody like in order to recognize his name and understand how influential he is, you have to be a a literary science fiction nerd um, oh, okay. like me right uh, and i and i think that's a shame because i i really wish his properties got the kind of mainstream attention that a lot of the stuff that is in one way or another derivative of his work oh. has okay like dungeons and dragons has gone mainstream warhammer 40k is very close to being pretty mainstream lots of people you know or you know non non nerds uh know about it know about the lore know about the universe they play video games about it all that kind of stuff yeah um but this author um like there's been all kinds of art created by people who've been inspired by him but unless you're a fan of that art who has who has read further nobody knows his name mm-hmm. um and so i want to i want to try to rectify that and i just want to talk about all of the ways in which he has uh uh impacted genre fiction and and video games and metal music and a whole bunch of other things okay and um and i know and and this is a gift for you because I'm going to tell you his name and it's going to launch a thousand puns. Oh, okay. So many first of, of all, them, the, many of them mm-hmm. inappropriate. So, okay. So, so you're welcome ahead of time. I'm going to make two guesses here. Yeah. Does his name start with an H? <laughs> no, it does not. Did he spend time in the Navy? No, he did not. And I actually have a note here about that. <laughs> okay. Uh, no, his, his name Mm-hmm. Is Michael Moorcock, and there it is, and there oh, it is. It's not even my birthday. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, yeah. All right. I, I knew, I knew the, that you were just going to be like, "Oh my God, really?" Is that yeah. his real name? That is, in fact, his real name. He's and an he Englishman. wrote under that name. He did. He didn't have a nom de plume nope. of like Craven well, Moorhead. Yeah. <laughs> and there it is. Or Richard Fitzwell. Or. <laughs> Richard Fitzsimmons or yeah, nope, no. nope, nope, nope. He, he did write under uh, some, there are some of his works that were written under a nom de plume, but they're not anything like that. 
No. Okay. No. No. Um, oh, and I, by the way, I hit yeah. I hit my my union vice president with some names in a group chat because um, there's just a, a question of, of parliamentary procedure. Can we bring okay. members to come and observe uh, so that they can get a feeling for what it takes to be a rep? So we're trying to expand our reach, okay. you know? Okay, yeah, yeah. And there's a very good reason for doing that, right? Yeah. But That's then again, totally there's legit. the, you don't necessarily want to open yourself, open up closed proceedings to the general public, even though they are members, right? So yeah. there's yeah, yeah. a bit of that. But so they're like, well, you know, let us, and we're all still meeting on Zoom. So they said, you know, let us know the names and then we'll know to look out for them. And then, you know, da da da. Okay, cool. And so that was the other person asking that. And so he said, you know, what are the names? And I chimed in with some names. Uh, yeah. And so I chimed in with Hugh Morris um, and uh, Isla Vlusi. Um, And he comes back with, I can't find any members whose last names are Vlusi. And I was like, He's like, where do, where do they teach? And I, was, and I was like, oh man, you oh, those were obvious. Like, um, <laughs> those were jokes. I didn't I didn't realize I needed to angle the guns lower. And um, and you know I'm that sorry. moment on a group chat where someone is categorically silent, where previously they weren't. You know they're yeah. pissed at you. Yeah, yeah, I had that moment. So I texted him <laughs> separately. I said, hey man, I'm real sorry to have added to your work day. Uh, if it makes you feel any better, I got suspended for doing that once in eighth grade, uh, which is true. Because, because of course you did. Because we had a substitute. Because, like, and they asked, is there anybody whose name I haven't called? And because we had the, the scantrons. And you have to, uh, you, know, you but yeah. the subs don't yeah. get the scantrons, but they get a copy mm -hmm. of it. So mm -hmm. then you have a, a absence slip where you write down all the names. Yeah. And then that goes to yeah. the front office. Front office yeah. inputs the names and those kids get marked as absent. And I said, yeah, uh, Neil. And she's like, Neil. I said, she said, what's his last name? Smith. She's like, he's not on this list. I'm like, I know. Uh, they made the list on Monday. He transferred in on Wednesday. Uh, today's Friday. And I'm like barely holding it together. So she writes down Neil Smith. Takes it up to the, it goes up to the office. Apparently that system worked in such a way that like, it was kind of like the Y2K bug. That if oh, you no. added in a name that didn't exist, it would throw everything off by one, and it crashed the entire attendance server in 1992 uh, in that middle school. Um, so, yeah, only you. Apparently, like that's that's the kind of thing that would be in a, in a John Cusack movie from from the late 80s, and and like you yeah. you actually did that. So yeah, I I did not yeah. use Michael Moorcock. That might have actually been more obvious uh, that, that, than that than Hugh Morris. Hugh Hugh Morris. Yeah, yeah, and I love Lucy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, so anyway. Michael Moorhead, Craven Moorcock, <laughs> Richard Fitzpatrick, Patrick yeah, Fitz, he, Richard. He he was born mm. in 1939. Oh and, oh wow! Yeah, in and in England. Okay. This is an important detail because he's part of a generation that came of age in the post-war era. Yeah. And he has a distinctly different attitude toward authority and the conventions of fantasy and science fiction than sure. his predecessors. Sure. Um, he was six when the war ended. Uh-huh. So that's old enough to remember things, but not old enough to have like a meaningful grasp on issues. Right. You remember impressions. 
and you almost remember contexts emotionally rather than as context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he grew up under the post-war consensus and the welfare state because, remember, the NHS started up in 1947 right. when he was nine. And the National Insurance Act, establishing universal health insurance and old age pensions, had passed in 46. Yeah, because England didn't have the party of, wait, 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 wait. You mean black people will get taken care of too? Yeah. yeah nah, they, fuck it. They, yeah, no. Yeah, they didn't yeah. have that party. No, they, did, they didn't have that problem. Um, yeah. they, they had the party of, all right, fine, even the black people. Like that. Yeah. 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 Okay. It's yeah, it's the well, other because, side of that coin. It's yeah. still shitty, but yeah, at least still, you get healthcare. You yeah. Know? Still sucks, but like, yeah. yeah. So, um, as we've mentioned before, uh, in in earlier episodes where we where we talk about the UK in mm -hmm. the in the inter, uh, post war period, uh, rationing was actually tighter in the mm -hmm. United Kingdom uh, immediately post war than it had been before. Right. And so that that sense of things that that uh i don't want to say privation because there's no indication that he like ever actually went hungry or anything but that but, that emotional weight of having rationing be something going on in the background would have been a thing yeah i mean if you drop the butter on the floor it's a problem that's that's actually you're not, yeah yeah you're not getting more for yeah. another week yeah so yeah, uh, if you go back, uh, for listeners, if you go back to episodes four and five specifically, uh, that would be all the way back there, um, yeah, you way, will find... Yeah, the way back machine, yeah. Yeah, you, you will find us talking about rationing um, yeah. amongst other episodes, but that's, yeah. that's one of the more obvious ones. Yeah, that's that's where it was uh, a, a critically important part of the historical context. Mm -hmm. And so in, in the UK during his childhood... Uh, the conservatives and labor, uh, I mean, fought like feral cats for mm -hmm. seats in parliament. I mean, you know, there was a vicious kind of scheming and and looking to try to paint each other as, you know, villains. And, you know, there was there was this this, you know, very high pitch of competition. Mm -hmm. But they both largely agreed on the points of the post-war consensus. Like immediately post-war, both of them were like, no, no, we need to have uh, a significant level of centralization, you know, in the economy. We need to have uh, a, we need to establish the welfare state, um, you know, and, and these are the things we're not going to touch. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're, we're not going to mess with unions. We're not going to mess with uh, uh, old, you know, we were establishing old age pensions. Uh, you know, these, these are, these are institutions and, and bits of infrastructure that, that sure. we're, we're going to leave alone because we need them to literally rebuild the country. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and so there's all this political backbiting and snarling, but on the street level, especially when you're, you know, a little kid. And then when you're a teenager, into young adult on ground level they're the same yeah there's going to be there's going to be this perception that it's no they're 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 each painting the other as these villains but like no what's what's the you, difference that's if you as a kid pay attention yeah i mean i grew up during uh reaganism and during uh iran contra yeah and I didn't spend that much time focusing on those. Oh no. When you know? you're when you're 
nine, 10 years old. It's, yeah. it's irrelevant to your daily existence. Right. You know, so, and, and then with the cold war raging, mm-hmm. that just made it all seem that much more uh, irrelevant. Sure. Sure. Because all of that domestic politics back and forthing is going on uh, in the foreground while in the background, right. you know, is, is the literally the destruction of the planet. Right. <laughs> in, you are, in, you in are polishing fire the brass box. on yeah. the Titanic. <laughs> yeah. You yeah. know? Um, and so for somebody, especially somebody who's a cynic, mm-hmm. um, which Moorcock either, either was born with a predilection to be, or, you know, became one uh, or, little column a little column b um like this this is going to look like posturing as there's no there's no meaningful difference you know yeah and at the same time that's going on he's growing up in a world in which britain's position as a world power was on a very swift crashing decline right it was losing all the empire yeah. Uh, and in foreign affairs, it became a junior partner to the United States, mm-hmm. uh, you know, especially after uh, the Suez crisis was right. kind of kind of the the uh, capstone moment on that was like, yeah. no, we we won. We went to Suez and we succeeded. And then the U.S. president came in and said, the hell you do. Well, not only the U.S., you know, but the USSR, like the two yeah. groups that like, yeah, were both. loggerheads about most things came together <laughs> to, to tell England. No. Yeah. No. Sorry. No. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the, I'm I'm pointing all of this out mm-hmm. because, and here's where the note comes up. It's become a running joke whenever I talk about an SF or fantasy author. Okay. How many years was he in the Navy? Right. 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 <laughs> so now we have somebody um, who he's from a distinctly different generation with a very different worldview than Asimov or especially Heinlein, like particularly Heinlein yeah. talking about authors that I've, that I've, you know, done time about here, sure. you know, And I have I have a quote actually from him from an interview uh, that Moorcock did in in two thousand two. Um, he said, "I'm very I'm moralistic." Sorry. I'm sorry. You have a quote from somebody about Moorcock from two thousand two. Yeah, I'm just like, oh, is Houston, uh, you know, chiming in? Yeah. Okay. All right. <clears throat> anyway, yeah. focus. <laughs> I'm really very tough. moralistic. Mm-hmm. I think I bear a certain responsibility for the effect of the fiction I write. Anger at injustice, cruelty, or ignorance is what tends to fire me up. I try to show readers where we might all be wearing cultural blinders. I hate imperialism, so therefore much of my early work was an attempt to show admirers of the British Empire, say, what kind of injustice, prejudice, and hypocrisy such an empire is based on. I'm very uneasy with current Anglophone rhetoric about responsibilities to other parts of the world, for instance. So... He's overtly anti-imperialist. Yeah. Uh, in other in, in other interviews and in other in other writings of his, he has uh, uh, described himself uh, as an anarchist. Okay. Um. He he 
specifically has stated that he does not believe anyone should accept anything from gods or masters, uh, his own words, uh, that, that we should uh, champion ourselves, essentially. So, you know, it sounds like a more anti- like, it sounds like a more uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Optimistic, maybe sense of objectivism. Yeah. Like yeah. if if Ayn Rand got hugged more. <laughs> yeah. If Ayn Rand's if Ayn Rand's mommy gave her more attention as a child. Yeah. Right. You know, yeah, because because um, we're out here alone, we're doing this thing and we should not accept because I'm just thinking of the letter that Ayn Rand wrote to her niece who had asked her for help. And she was just such an asshole to her. Of oh, like, yeah. Will you pay me back no matter what? And if not, will you accept that I will never have a relationship with you? It's like, yo, but like that yeah. at the core of like, you know, we got to look out for ourselves. Like, yeah, no gods, no masters look out for ourselves. Like that's yeah. still very Ayn Rand. It's yeah. Just, she took it to the wrong way. Like that's. Yeah. yeah. He, he's, he's, he's. Uh, he has the, you know, we need to look out for ourselves, but he, he then he balances it out with, we, we need to also look out for each other. Okay. Like we, we shouldn't, it's, it's more anti-authoritarian. It's like, we shouldn't be accepting anything from on high. Mm, okay. You know, we, we should, no we should be our own. Yeah. We should be yeah. our own masters kind of thing. Now, did he care about the result or was it just the stance? Um, that I'm not hundred percent sure about. I, okay. I wasn't able to find a whole lot there, but I'm I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure the result was was important to him from okay. from what he from what he says about, you know, injustice, cruelty, ignorance, you know. So he cares about consequentialism uh, then. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He does. Yeah. He, so it's, and, it's and not, I, okay. So it's, it's not that existential, like you are legislating yeah. for humanity. It's no, we're trying to have a goddamn society here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We're trying to have, we're trying to have a society and we should not bow to mm-hmm. uh, arbitrary authority. Okay. If that makes sense. No, it does. I'm, I'm it not, does. I'm not sure if that's, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm, if I'm phrasing it right to, to explain it, but that's, that's the, that's the sense that, that I get from him. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he grew up and of course, so I mean, and, and you look at the circumstances under which he was growing up and it kind of all makes sense that this is going to be his, his uh, viewpoint, mm-hmm. right? Because as far as he understood it, um, there never was anything really great about the British empire. Yeah, like you know. he didn't see it stand <laughs> up know. to Nazism. He didn't he wasn't he wasn't conscious enough to see that. Yeah. Yeah. Um and he only uh, saw it bleeding out at the end. Yeah. Yeah. And and for him the experience of seeing the collapse of the British Empire it wasn't necessarily a bad thing. You know, it was it was the world is moving on. Right. And this old outdated, you know, racist, you know, structure mm-hmm. is being undone. And, you know, there is there is nothing bad about that. Right. 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 What did you um, say what his parents did 
or no, I wasn't able to find. Up. I wasn't able to find very much information. I know that his background was was uh, bourgeois. Okay. Um. He he was not. Um. You know the the child of factory workers, and he was also not you know Eton educated. Um. So solidly, you know what we would call middle class. So came home from school every day. Yeah. Like not, not yeah. a boarding school kid. Not, yeah. No. Okay. No, not, not, not anything like that. Okay. Um, and so all of this is a really strong, uh, divergence. This is, this is a mm-hmm. huge change departure. That's the word I was looking for. This is a huge <laughs> departure, uh, from Heinlein or Asimov. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Asimov was, you know, kind of kind of liberal but he was still very much an establishment pro authority right kind of figure you look at what right. asimov writes it's all very much you know uh organized society and and benevolent authority is what you know we need mm-hmm. um and then heinlein was somewhere to the right of chinggis khan politically speaking uh you know who who wrote an entire uh political philosophical polemic uh because he got mad finding out that we had signed a treaty that we were going to test fewer nuclear weapons like <laughs> you know I, I like being being the guy who's mad about that yeah yeah um well you know and and he he was he was coming from a very specific you know, viewpoint in time and space that was informed by a very specific set of very specific set of things, you know, sure. Um, and so, you know, Heinlein, uh, and then I haven't talked about when, when Heinlein got weird later in, in the sixties, uh, Heinlein went from being, uh, you know, a, a militarist, um, a right winger to a, a, uh, free love um what's the word i'm looking for ayn rand's people um libertarian yeah (laughs) went to to being a free love libertarian freako um i haven't talked about stranger in a strange land yet at some point i'm I'm gonna have to but uh but it but but in all cases heinlein was still you know way over on on the on the right end right hand end of the political spectrum and um he was even even when he wrote stranger in a strange land he he did not go so far as to become an anarchist and moorcock was one from day one and so these these outlooks and and actually the last individual i need i need to talk about comparing moorcock to is tolkien because what we're going to be talking about is fantasy Mm-hmm. And and um, every Brit who's writing fantasy is responding to Tolkien on some level. On some level, yeah. And and Moorcock knew Tolkien, uh, admired him as a person, even, mm-hmm. but considered uh, Lord of the Rings to be lacking in weight. He considered it a disappointment. Uh, he wanted, uh, as he put it, he wanted there to be more of a sense of mankind's impermanence. Oh. And and consider that Tolkien, of course, was writing all of that as a devout Catholic and a royalist. Right. You know, in in the universe of the Lord of the Rings, in Middle Earth, Aragorn's status as rightful king. Just carries, the existence that there is that. 
Yeah. One. Two, his his status as rightful king carries metaphysical weight. It's mm-hmm. not merely a political thing. It is it is a spiritual and a like like it it has an impact on the universe. Right. Um and Tolkien's universe is essentially one in which there is ultimately a benevolent god and the evil in that universe is coming about because of the efforts of a fallen angel. Mm-hmm. Right. And, mm-hmm. and there is, and ultimately beyond even that, uh, there is good and there is evil. And those things are again, uh, real and they mm-hmm. carry metaphysical weight. Yeah, there's good okay. in this world and it's worth fighting for Mr. Frodo. Yes. There you go. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's I mean you know as as we've mentioned when we've talked about Tolkien he didn't set out to write an allegory but he did right right <laughs> because because it was it was just so much a part of of what informed his view of the universe that mm-hmm. that that's how his fictional universe turned out so, so Morcock wished that he was more intentional with that and had leaned into that more then like. He's saying um, like allegory the fuck out of this because that's what we're supposed to do. Well, I there might have there like that might have been part of it, but mm-hmm. the other thing is um because of his inherent anarchism and his inherent cynicism, mm-hmm. um, he considered it all like hopelessly twee. There yeah. there have yeah. been there have been a whole there are lots of incidental quotes from him where he he shakes his head and just talks about oh my god it's just it's just so schmaltzy it's you know lord of the ring oh god and the fucking hobbits and you know it's all it's all just too too happy fluffy you know um and so his his worldview was just fundamentally very different um none of that stuff carried any weight and you know going going back into what what he was seeing in the mm-hmm. world around him india became independent and got partitioned in 1947 right okay and so he's and 8 years old so he's 8 years old and as much as recently we have commentary in the uk there's this there's this thread of commentary from from pundits on mm-hmm. the conservative end of the spectrum in the uk who look back on, you know, how humiliating the loss of India was and, right. and what a, what a terrible thing this was for our prestige. And, you know, it was, it was such a blow to our, to our national psyche. If you actually look back at the time, uh, giving up India was actually broadly supported by both political parties. Yeah. Because it was, um, it's you've got i mean oh, jesus i don't like this metaphor but it works you've got the tiger by the tail yeah like you 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 can't hang on you can't let go like there's nothing that's good that's going to come of this yeah um, and it, yeah. and we we don't have the money right. to administer it anymore it. we right. can't maintain it we can't defend it right um you know it's like okay no it's just time for us to let it go and you know churchill was actually um you know a wing nut 
uh, by comparison to even members of his own party in terms of how how desperately he clung to to the empire. Right. You know, every everybody else around him was like, no, it's too expensive. It's it's we don't it's not doing anything for us. Just, you know, let it go and, you know, make it part of the Commonwealth and Mm -hmm. like move on. Right. Right. And we've talked about the dissolution of the British Empire in a bunch of other episodes. Uh, Sherlock Holmes. It was it was part of the context for that. Correct. Uh, When we talked about 40K in episodes four and five, you know, as part of that. Um, But it's worth noting right now that this was happening while Moorcock was old enough to remember the time before Mm -hmm. and to see the changes that decolonization had on his own world. Okay. Okay, Yeah. Yeah. So as he's growing up, England and, and the United Kingdom at large is becoming more diverse. The Windrush generation is shortly after this. Immigration from India, Pakistan, other decolonized Commonwealth nations is is a thing because there was a labor shortage. They were bringing people in from all over what had been the empire. Well, and uh, just for our listeners who may not remember the Windrush generation, uh, that's named after the ship that brought people in from a large group of immigrants in from, I believe, Jamaica. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So you're talking uh, what the English referred to as the the West Indies. Yes. Um, and this leads to I, I believe we talked about this with punk rock, actually, because this mm-hmm. leads to uh, that influence of music as well as that working class kind of culture and the multiculturalism mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. So, and yeah. this is this is where all of these all of this immigration leads to like all kinds of stuff going on. There's sure. Uh, well, I'm going to get to that in a second. I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Um, at the same time, <laughs> uh, the UK has a less dominant role on the world stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, NATO forms in 1949. Mm-hmm. And in 1957, so around about the time he's 18, the European Economic Community forms. With the UK not being part of it yet. And wasn't and that, it originally the the European coal and steel community? Yes, and, that, and was, that was okay. that yeah. was the year. I want to say, I want to say the year 53. before. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it might have been fifty three. I was thinking fifty six, yeah. but it might have been fifty three. The EEC forms in fifty seven, and that creates a competing economic block on the continent. Right. And that's the Treaty of Rome in fifty seven. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, and so, sorry, just real quick, no, previous to this. Uh, okay, so. The British mandate in Palestine, uh, <laughs> things shifted. Um, yeah, and that's 48. then, <laughs> yeah, that's 48. That's the Nakba, right? Or, yeah, Nab- is that how you say it? Uh, I want to Nabka. say, yeah, Nakba. Yeah, Nakba. Um, and then also <laughs> Mossadegh in Iran, uh, in mm. Iran, um, mm-hmm. where the British, I, in many ways, it feels like that's kind of their first their first realization that the only way that they can be big movers and shakers is if they direct the big dummy, but the strong dummy to go do shit because they got so mad that Iran was nationalizing BP. Yeah. They then sicked Eisenhower and Dulles and, on, and the CIA. Yeah. On, you know, on like I said, and Dulles uh, yeah. uh, onto Mossadegh <laughs> yeah. and, and, and they're like, see there. 
So it's yeah, yeah. like, so their only real power and influence is the ability to manipulate the golden retriever into biting people. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of a better dog breed. Cause like golden, retri- I, I it's too feel nice. Like, yeah. It's yeah. clumsy, but it's too nice. The chow chow. Dorky. There you go. You know, yeah. it's still clumsy, yeah. but it's a prick. Like but it's, it's a jerk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah. it's it's so I mean they're they're suffering defeat after defeat after defeat in the, through the through the 50s and they're having to cede things to overwhelmingly uh, brown populations that they'd previously mm. been dominant of. Um yeah. and then you've got like you said uh the Windrush, right? Yeah. Um yeah, the Windrush generation where it's it's you are bringing in a lot of not white people into mm-hmm. the island. So there's this yeah. huge shift away from the normalized whiteness of England um, mm-hmm. and of the UK. And, and to somebody of uh, Moorcock's age, mm-hmm. this would not have been a bad thing. Like, cause he's, he's not old enough to be attached to right. these older ideas of I- identity of what it means to be English. He's not right. You know, to him, um, you know, his, his attitude toward the crown, toward the empire, toward all of these institutions is, is going to be entirely uh, different. And in, in his case, it's um, he, he is a lot less emotionally invested in any of them. Well, I would, uh, you know. I would say even more to the point, um, Moorcock would have been seeing people having convulsions and fits about it and, yeah. and seen that as like, oh, that's really fucking stupid. And like being the anarchist <laughs> that he yeah. ends up being, um, you know, seeing that and how people in power aren't able to shift with demographics and just get angrier and he's like well that's that's dumb so i could even see him embracing that more Mm -hmm. and and you know making those choices yeah so yeah um and so you know while we're talking about uh you know the windrush generation and its impact on music Mm um my next heading is rock and roll youth subcultures and the new wave Mm -hmm. so uh rock and roll arrived in the uk uh, thanks largely to U.S. servicemen bringing records over with them and American movies. Uh, the Teddy and later the Mod subcultures were closely associated with rock music. And predictably, the music and the subcultures elicited moral panic from older generations. Just just like they did here. Like you do. Yeah. You know, uh, people freaking out about greasers. Uh, um what what I find interesting, though, is we've we've talked before about how, you know, a very significant, although sub rosa mm-hmm. part of the panic in the United States was racism. It was, oh, my God, white kids are dancing to this to this black music. Right. Right. This, you know, and, oh God, and Alan Freed concerts led to police riots where they beat the shit out of children in the fifties. Yeah. Because they played uh country music and then soul music right after it. Yeah. And the police beat the kids, calling them cocksuckers, and the parents were like, 
good. This is good. Yeah. Yeah. We need to make sure they don't. Yeah. They, yeah. they need to be punished for that. They need to know that's not acceptable. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because, you know, the fifties were the idealized perfect decade in our, in our society. Right. right. Yeah. Well, America uh, was great. Yeah. She made fucking Christmas. So the yes. thing is like there's unions, there's really strong unions. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. And they're not based like, on racism. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, but, yeah. And yet so much other stuff is like, yeah. <laughs> we can, like we the can rest point of to, it is. Yeah. We, we can, we can point to, to one or two really, really great things that we're like, yes, yeah, that's actually right. And everything else is no, that's bullshit. Right. Damn it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, oh, political um, consensus. No, McCarthy. No, oh, McCarthy. God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, what was what's what's weird about the moral panic in the UK to me as an American observer mm-hmm. is that like we can look at the moral panic that happened around rock and roll here in the states, and it's like obviously like like so many other things like if there's anything screwed up in, in right. american history we can look at it and go well our original sin in this country is racism so like there you are right in the uk this music was being brought over in the form of elvis like it was it was elvis and the big bopper by the time right. it got to the uk it wasn't black musicians it was white people you know, it using was white black people music. it was it, yeah, it was white people <laughs> using black music uh, you know um and total total sidebar but you say that and i immediately think of uh, uh without me by uh eminem mm-hmm. and and him being so straight up honest about you know um oh yeah yeah uh, uh, 40 million other best, white rappers emerge yeah yeah uh best thing since elvis the, the last yeah. thing since elvis uh to use black music so selfishly to, and to, I use so it selfishly to make myself and I use wealthy. it to make yeah. myself wealthy. Like and then know, I think immediately or, of of public enemy. Elvis was a king to most, but he never meant shit to me. Yeah. <laughs> so, like you know, yeah. and then they go on about how he was a liar and a bigot and a racist. Oh yeah, and everything. Yeah. yeah. Because I mean he was. Um yeah, yeah. I mean he he wanted to be a drug czar for Nixon because he was mad at the Beatles using pot. Like what Meanwhile, he did for music was up, phenomenal. Yeah. But his personal politics were like the opposite of the effect that his music had. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, no. And, and he, he showed up wanting to be a drug czar for Nixon while he was blasted out of his mind on, on booze and benzos. But those were prescribed. So it's okay. And he, he had a big, no, he had a big thing about that. Like it's I, okay I, I if it's prescribed. <clears throat> so, I, I know. Yeah. And we sent I, him to the UK. I, so. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, admittedly, when we sent him to the UK, it was before the the benzo issue. Right. Um, I mean, we sent was, him to Germany. Technically. Yeah. <laughs> well, we exported his music. Oh, okay. So his music, yeah, yeah. Yeah, his music uh, showed up in the UK. Um, him and the big and the big popper were were how that music showed up in 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 the UK, and so like the the racist context of the moral panic is at least more muted mm-hmm. um it it largely has a lot to do with oh my god these kids are just so loud and and wacky um 
and and kind of out of control. And they have, and just like here in the United States, the fear of teenagers is all of a sudden they have time mm-hmm. and money that earlier generations hadn't. Did teenagers in England have money though? Well, here's the thing: compared to their parents, okay, they did. And yeah, the way that they're they, they had more trying to figure out a way to phrase it. They had more cultural independence and, and because of the rapid changes in media, Mm -hmm. um, the, the kids who were becoming teenagers in the fifties and into the sixties had more access to a more rapidly shifting popular culture than their parents had. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, some of that is also how much more urban center a lot of the places in England because they were rebuilding. So they got yeah. to build with intention, yes. um, whereas America was much more rural centric. And even though we hit that tipping point in 1900, yeah. you're still building it on top of a formerly rural society. Mm-hmm. So having cars was a very American thing. You didn't need that in mm-hmm. in England you didn't need mm-hmm. that in most of the the urban centers because they were like we need to build better transport and we need to build yeah. urban centers back to mm-hmm. bring businesses back so kids would be 15 minutes from home anytime but that also meant that yeah. you know you, you could care less about where they were yeah and additionally um the UK had a rail network Right. That allowed for kids to go to the next mm-hmm. town over or at the town beyond that a lot sure. easier. Sure. And, you know, get in trouble and pick fights. Yeah. You know, or or go to go to dance clubs and, you know, use uh, amphetamines to dance literally all night. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, <clears throat> you know, there there are those things going on there. And uh, if you compare and, and there's there's also just the, the fact that. Comparing pre-war and post-war music, mm-hmm. the rock and roll arriving in the UK from the States was loud, percussive, and aggressive. Sure, sure. It was new. Mm-hmm. It was a dramatic departure from what had come before. It was very, very energetic. I was going to say frenetic even. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, yeah. And the youth cultures associated with it conflicted with one another. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all of them rejected upper class and older values in favor of self-expression. And we, we use this phrase specifically to talk about punk before, but kind of a do it yourself mm-hmm. identity formation. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the Teddies went on to get in a huge fight with fights with punks in the seventies um, because of their, their differing kind of, kind of outlooks on things. But um, the Teddies were actually the, the first recognized one of these subcultures that showed up in the early 1950s. And uh, they earned their name because they wore clothes that were rooted in a revival of Edwardian fashions. So at the end of the war, okay. there's going to be a whole bunch of young men coming back from the war and mm-hmm. especially young officers who are coming back from the war going to be coming back into civilian society Mm-hmm. Savile Row tailors in London, like the high, high end of, of fashion people in Britain. 
uh, tried to push these Edwardian drape jackets, shawl collars, uh, high-waisted trousers, and brocade waistcoats uh, as this is going to be the new thing. This, this is this is what you want to look like, you know. And they and they tried to sell this to young officers coming home from the war. But young officers coming home from the war were looking at okay, well, no, in the states, it's a very different it's a very different look. Um, it's the gray flannel suit. It has those, you know, very, very clean uh, mid-century kind of lines to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's all kind of very sharply cut, you know, kind of sharp shoulders and all this kind of stuff. And and that wound up being where the upper middle class and everybody else went. And so all of these Savile Row tailors had all these clothes that they'd made. Sure. Lying lying making them no money and so they went and they uh then uh sent them out to other tailors around the country they said hey i have i have these clothes and uh they in turn sent these clothes out to other tailors in other parts of the country who cut the prices somewhat uh, mm-hmm. off of what they they would have been, and then uh, sold these clothes on installment plans mm. to working class young men, okay. who for whom these were uh, ostentatious kind of statements of well, you know, we're all stuck in rationing and we have all this stuff going on, but hey, look at the cut, man. So this is the late fifties. This is yeah, early fifties actually. Early fifties, okay. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. And uh, I mean, so these in America, you had. I mean, we had rationing here during the war, and I'm just thinking of the Zoot Suit riots of '43, like where our sailors beat the shit out of people, specifically <laughs> beat the shit out of uh, Chicanos, uh, for, and and Jewish kids, and really. Yeah, I need to go back in and dig there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but they beat the shit out of them, uh, for for wearing too much wool, essentially, uh, yeah. or deigning to be too American. Um, yeah, you know, and so yeah, yeah, and okay. and the and the thing is, the same uh kind of urge that that drove the fashion of the zoot suit, the whole hey, look at the flash. You know, uh, in a in a time of scarcity, look what I have spent most of my money on in order to stand out and and look cool, right? Sure, sure. It's it's the same conspicuous consumption. It's, it, yeah, it's 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 the same kind of kind of motivation here. Um, and so these relatively cheap but ostentatious dandy kind of clothes mm-hmm. became the uniform of a mostly white working class youth subculture. Okay. Now, a little bit later, uh, we see rockers uh, show up on the scene. Mm -hmm. They're also referred to as ton boys. And that's because of the British phrase doing a ton was a slang term for going 100 miles an hour on a motorcycle. Because it would would have the power to pull 2,000 pounds? I don't know. It's okay. it's it's somehow, you know, in, in the same vein as Cockney rhyming slang. It's sure, just sure. the way they referred to like, no, I, I, I hit a hundred on the way here. Yeah, man, right. I, I, I did it. I, I did a ton. Right. Did a ton. Okay. So ton boys. Yeah. Ton boys. 
um, they gravitated, gravitated toward motorcycle culture, dressing in leathers and forming motorcycle clubs. Mm-hmm. Now, before the war, it's interesting to note, motorcycling had carried an era, an aura of glamour. Mm-hmm. If you, if you were a motorcyclist, you, you there, there was this, uh, sense that you were this, you know, dashing figure. It's almost because mechanized version of a, a gentry horseman. Kind of. Yes. Yeah. Because there was a, a class element and an economic element involved in being able to afford a motorbike. Right. After the war, motorcycles became less expensive mm-hmm. and uh, they became a poor, poor men's transportation. And so the cachet associated with it went away. Sure. And so uh, the, the connotations uh, immediately became much more low class. And of course, the moment anything becomes more low class, it also becomes more dangerous and more unpredictable and scarier. Right. 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 Okay. Um, and then next, uh, and last of the subcultures I'm going to talk about here, Mm -hmm. we have the mods, the mods, generally speaking, tended to come from tonier backgrounds. They weren't upper class, Mm -hmm. but their parents were more middle-class. They weren't, you know, factory worker, working class, um, and mods, uh, tended toward modern jazz and later towards ska, which is mm-hmm. interesting because there's overlap with skinheads with whom they they got into fights. Um, as as I recall from our explaining punk episode, uh, with yeah, Jason B. Um, yeah. While that was true, uh, you could often find uh, skinheads going to places. Oh, and and also with Keith Lowell Jensen, author. Yeah, of, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, punching Nazis, uh, where skinheads would go to places where the mod mod gals were because they were the cutest, mm-hmm. and yeah, that's what also would bring them into conflict. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, and if you want to think about the the aesthetic of mod culture, mm-hmm. um, a lot of the iconography, a lot of the imagery that we have of the swinging sixties, baby, yeah, mm-hmm. in London is taken straight out of mod culture. It's, it's the, the kind of mop top looking haircuts. It's sure. the, um, corduroy very jackets. Yeah. Corduroy or, or tartan jackets, right. uh, turtleneck sweaters, you know, those kind of clean lines, bright colors, you know, um, all of that kind of stuff. Oh, and Vespas scooters of all kinds. So scooters this, were a huge thing. Is this why we see that pop up in Kenobi? Is that yes. an homage to this? Um, yeah. Well, the the modders in okay. in uh, was it Kenobi or was it in uh, Book of Boba Fett? Oh, I'm trying shit. to remember if they showed up in Kenobi. It was Book of Boba Fett. Oh, it was okay. the modders. The, yeah. the modders or mods in Book of Boba Fett are yes, a hundred percent right. Like stolen, just <laughs> straight yeah. up. Like no, I'm I'm going to take this and I'm going to make it Star Wars, and and knowing what i knew about the about the historical subculture i looked at that in the show and i was like i i don't know how i feel about this like on the one hand this is awesome 
on the other, I feel like it's kind of lazy. I don't know. Like, well, there was also uh, a biker gang of Nikto in that one too. Remember, mm-hmm. uh, yep. who were picking on Cami and Fixer. Yep. So yep. you know, mm-hmm. th- very much blending martial westerns with uh with with bike, biker gangs. The reason I thought it yeah. was Kenobi, by the way, is because um, Ewan McGregor's daughter plays one of the martyrs. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. So. Okay. So anyway, Vespas. so yeah, yeah, Vespas, yeah. Um, and so we have uh, this is this is all happening in the fifties into the sixties. This is the youth culture that Moorcock would have been a part of. Uh, Moorcock is a musician in addition to mm-hmm. being an author. Uh, he um, uh, has been a part of a couple of bands. He has written music for a couple of prog rock bands, uh, written lyrics at least for a couple of prog rock bands. So like his whole ethos is influenced by rock and roll and by this, this energy and this vitality of this youth culture that he was in whether he was a mod or a rocker or what, mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, I wasn't able to get any definitive answers about that, but you know, this, this was the environment he was in. Sure. And so the energy and the vitality of all of these subcultures had a massive influence on music, cinema, literature, mm-hmm. like all, all of the various kinds of art that was being created at the time. And, this is where we get to the new wave, which I've discussed before, mm-hmm. um, particularly when we talked about New Android's Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. And now I realize that oh. both of the new wave authors I've I've done significant work on have phallic jokes built right in for you. Again, yeah. you're welcome. Yeah, no, it's good. Um, but for anybody who hasn't listened to those episodes yet, the new wave was a movement in science fiction. Uh, that ran concurrently with the new wave in in cinema, particularly French cinema and other art forms. Um, it is notable uh, for centering psychological and social elements. Uh, character and complexity of character was much more important uh, in new wave stuff than it had been previously. Right. Uh, the ethos of all of it was deliberately contrary to the pulp conventions of earlier science fiction. Of the whiz bang and the uh, yeah, well, yeah. extra galactic distances traveled and stuff like that. This yeah. Is very, yeah. Yeah. And it's uh, this, this is also tied in very much with the death of the pulps themselves and a shift mm-hmm. to paperback book formats. Right. Um, so you're not, you're not just selling, you know, a cheap, you know, uh, uh, a <laughs> yellow, yellow paper magazine. Right. Yeah. anymore you're you're selling a, a skinny novel and well and so now, the length and the complexity has to go up yeah you know and, to go and, with that and the the analysis of familial relations within these things also goes way up like you don't have people doing things for a cause anymore now like with philip k dick stuff they're doing it for for skin yeah that was a well-erected joke yeah 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 don't yeah. be so stiff. Good I don't mean to day, be so hard on sir. you. I... Good day, sir. I need you to stop with all these emissions, please.
So Sorry. I'm being um, I'm being extra ejocular. <laughs> really? Nice. Nice. Yeah. You. Yeah. That's, I hate you. Um, so the topics and themes mm -hmm. uh, of these works were uh, tied to psychedelia, the Vietnam War, right? Uh, racial politics, racism, civil rights movements. If there's a space empire in a new wave sci-fi book, it's going to be deconstructed or it's going to be portrayed with a lot of cynicism. Right. Uh, Dune is a really good example of this. Dune is 100% a new wave book. Um. It is it is a problematic step forward mm -hmm. <laughs> to to uh, paraphrase Dr. Cruz, um, but it it is like it's a it's an intergalactic empire and we see all of the dirty doings behind the scenes and the and the moral uh, uh, vagueness of it. Mm -hmm. Style was a lot more complex mm -hmm. and the language was much more literary and self-aware. Which makes and sense that, because we're talking about somebody who's coming from a generation where their identity is very much more self-aware constructed. Yes. You know, whereas yeah. previous generations just fucking, we're trying to exist here, man. Like, and, yeah. and yeah. things just happen organically. Whereas this is, we're declaring ourselves on some levels. Mm -hmm. We are, yes, things have been handed to us or passed down to us or, or shut, shoveled off to us. But also, we are deciding on some levels. Like we're not just going with the the momentum of the past. So, yeah, no, precisely. Um, and so, to the extent that fantasy has historically been lumped together with its sibling, science fiction, uh, the new wave is an important milestone for both genres. Okay, that makes sense. And. So uh, Moorcock's importance mm -hmm. uh, as a figure within the new wave is really very hard to overstate. Um, and I think this is going to be a good place for me to pause. Sure. And uh, we can, we can develop this further in our next episode. Uh, but stopping here mm -hmm. at this point in history um and and with this kind of you know background picture having been painted for for the forces that formed right. the man right um what's your what's your takeaway what are you thinking i'm i'm very curious um uh and and like you said a lot of the research that you turned up uh, came up dry i'm very curious what his thoughts on the youth culture were and how that reflects in his work um because he's he's again part of a generation that i'm not going to say was neglected by their parents but there does seem to be a an exhaustion amongst his parents generation having just gone through the blitz yeah and and a willingness to trust the kids to they can't get in too much trouble after all they're alive and we're happy about it like mm -hmm. there there does seem to be a a willingness to let them kind of find their own feet. And so when you talk about his anarchism, when you talk about how distrustful of authority he is, all of that makes a lot of sense. I want to know how conscious he was of it. Um, that's, that's what I'm, I'm intensely okay. curious about okay. because yeah. of that quote that you started with early on, where he talked about the morality of it, um, mm -hmm. you know, and his, his, it, and that's 2002 where that quote was from. So yeah, He's an old man by this point. He's done his stuff. Um, yeah. And I'm I'm very curious as to how that interacts with 
you know, because I keep thinking about other episodes we've done, how that interacts with the absurdism that we saw on the continent. Mm-hmm. Waiting mm-hmm. for Godot, the Samuel Beckett stuff, the sense yeah. of annihilation and, and nihilism that's entirely likely and the which <laughs> yeah. which to me is like kind of fuck it we're gonna make our own meaning then that makes you know that that makes sense yeah. for for yeah. a group of kids to do um i would love to see what he thought about that going into it so yeah no i i i, I wish i had been able to find more about that but yeah. um you know and there and there has been uh writing done uh on him he's he's written a memoir and there's been epigraphs written where people have interviewed him and all that kind of stuff. But, but I don't know, I was not able to find anything in the, in the time I had for the research I was doing uh, to, to go into detail about that. And I don't know how much of that was what he got asked about in the, in the epigrams or if it was all like literary stuff. Well, yeah. Um, otherwise um yeah what are you reading right now um so recommend yeah i i'm actually going to recommend a, a movie tonight oh, okay. uh, just because yeah. uh i'm i'm between books or I'm, okay. I'm actually deeply enmeshed in three um all of which i've recommended already so okay well, um but i'm going to recommend uh that you go and find iron monkey um from okay. the early 2000s uh, it was during a time where Quentin Tarantino was platforming a lot of movies uh, from the old Golden Harvest vault, it felt like. Oh, okay. He was finding a lot of wuja that he platformed. And Iron Monkey was one of them. And it has a very young Donnie Yen in it um, playing the father of Wong Fei Hong. Um, so it just kind of, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fun, it's, it's a fun movie. It's only like 80 minutes long too. Like it's oh, short, wow. on, okay. short on plot, um, yeah, well. <laughs> but, but it's, yeah, it's good. It's, so. Okay, cool. Yeah. What yeah, about you? you? You mentioned Donnie Yen and mm-hmm. you have my interest. Um, I'm going to very strongly recommend uh, that everybody go out and uh, find a copy of The Dreaming City. Uh, which is the first novelette in which mm-hmm. uh, Michael Moorcock's signature character, who I haven't even gotten around to mentioning yet, uh, but Elric appears for the first time. Okay. In the Dreaming City, and um, I'm a lot gonna, of people don't know this. Elric is Spanish for the Richard. Yes. So speaking yes. of Moorcock, the, the Richard. Yeah. Of course. Of course. So. <laughs> But um, it's it's actually been uh, adapted into a, a graphic novel, mm. Marvel Comics. So if you can if you can find that, um, I'm I'm not a huge fan of Marvel's visual adaptation. Okay. Of Elric, um, Dark Horse Comics did a whole a whole series of graphic novels in kind of the same way that they did a whole series of graphic novels about Conan. Okay. Um and. The artists who were involved in the Dark Horse adaptations, I prefer. Um, but that's that's strictly a preference. Um, the the Marvel adaptation is a strong adaptation of the Dream City. So, you know, how do you spell go, go ahead, take just so we know E L R I C. Okay. It does so. not. Just so you know, it does not show up on the Marvel Ultimate app. 
So food. That doesn't entirely surprise me because okay. it's a bit niche. Um, yeah, but so anyway, um, I very highly recommend that because, um, Elric is the character through whom, uh, Moorcock has influenced the genre as, as immensely as he has. So if you take a look at that story, you'll be, that's kind of, kind of homework, uh, for okay. where we're going in the next episode. I like it. I like it. Um, cool. Uh, do you want to be found right. anywhere? I do not want to be found. Okay. I am I am a shadow in the warp. Okay. How about you? Yeah, actually, uh, now is about the time that you want to start marking your calendars, folks. Uh, by the time this drops, you'll be within uh, shouting distance of March 1st. March 1st is the triumphant return of capital punishment to the greater Sacramento area. We will be at uh, the Comedy Spot, our new home on March 1st, uh, and we are the second show of the night. I believe that starts either at 8.30 or at 9. Uh, but okay, cool. Go check out the Comedy Spot. Uh, go Google search the Comedy Spot Sacramento. It'll take it first hit, and then look for upcoming shows, and you should probably find it there. But mark your calendars for March 1st and get out there and spin that wheel. So, All right. And where Very can they cool. find this fine podcast? Uh, this fine podcast can be found on the Apple podcast app or on Spotify, uh, wherever you've found us, you can also find us of course on our website. I almost forgot about that completely. That's at www.geekhistorytime.com. Wherever you have found us, uh, please take the time to hit the subscribe button and give us the five-star review that, you know, this is going to hurt to say Damien's phallic puns deserve. Um, yeah, it wasn't so hard. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, on the website, of course, you can go back and go through our entire back catalog. Yes. Uh, find whatever whatever topics catch your interest. Uh, and there's plenty of stuff we've we've touched on. Um, and if you have any suggestions right now, I don't have an avenue for you to provide those to us, but we'll we'll figure that out here soon. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Well, cool. Thank you very much uh, for A Geek History of Time. I'm Damian Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling 20s.